All right, well, let's get going. Let's get going with what we're talking about today, okay? Here we go. As Jesus is walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. As he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does, you, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then here is our go passage of the day. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. Okay, so, so here we go. So this is, our, this is our passage on Go. We're in this series called Go. It's, it's looking at different times that God challenged us and challenged his disciples and challenged his people to go. It was commands to go. And then would they actually respond? And, and, and in our place, do we actually respond to God's call to go? Now, when we're doing this series, this is, I think, our third week on this series, as we're doing this, we want to make sure that our hearts are in the right place in receiving that because we could say, yes, I'm going to go, and we do it and really still miss why God intended for us to do this in the first place. We could still miss that. So we want to make sure that our, our hearts are in the right place. See, when I... I, many of you guys know I grew up Catholic and, and, and then went to University of Washington and, and it was during the, the, my college years that I re, my faith really started to form. That's why I so love college students and why I ended up working doing college ministry for 20 years because it was those years that I really started putting pieces together on what this meant and I started to recognize Jesus' pursuit of me during those college years. Well, when that happened... I, a lot of my Catholic background and what was happening in the present were colliding in some ways. And one of the big ones was when it came to actually responding to God's call to do something, to go. I always felt like I had to. I have to do this. If I don't, purgatory is there for me. You know, My mom would always say, oh, you just made it into purgatory. You know, She never said hell, it was just purgatory. You know, so, it's, it's, so that was waiting for me. Or some sort of wrath was waiting for me or some sort of disappointment with God was waiting for me if I didn't just respond and just obey God. If he's gonna say, I gotta do this, then I gotta do it. And I missed a lot in there. Well, well as, as I'm in the heart of, of, of learning more about Jesus, there was a book that came out, and, and me and, and, and some guys started to study it. It was, called, it was called Experiencing God by a guy named Blackaby. Some of you guys have gone through this. It was a workbook. And when you're in college and you're in the business school, the last thing you want is homework on faith. That's the part that should be easy. And so I hated the workbooks. I'm going, oh, geez, we got to answer. What happens if I misspell a word? Is my Bible study going to get mad at me for this? You know, so is God going to say wrong, Bill? You know, so I didn't like the workbook part, but there was a part to what he was talking about that has always stuck with me ever since. It is the difference between just responding to God saying, all right, you tell me to give, so I'm going to give. You tell me to serve, so I'm going to serve. You tell me to read your Bible, so I'm going to read your Bible, versus the experience that we have with God if we recognize what he's doing. Here's what he, here's what he described, and, I, and I'm going to show this to you on, on the screen, so bear with me on this as I, as I write through this stuff, okay? So God, God is saying this. God is saying go, okay? That's what we've been talking about. And so, so, so here's God. That's my little, that's, that's my picture of God, okay? And, and 
And God is, God is, is, is telling us to go, and so what do we do? We obey, okay? We, we obey God, and we go. Now, that's what a lot of times, that's what we do. We hear we got to do it, we obey, and we got to go. What Blackaby's talking about is we're missing the experience of God. And what he says is this. He says it, it, it follows a, a pattern. The first one is that God is at work. We have to recognize that first, that God is at work and that he's always at work around us. Okay, so, so, so we have to recognize that first. God's at work. When you're, in your, when you're in your home, God's at work. When you're in your workplace, God's at work. He's, he's, he's at work. Around, you don't, we don't see it always, but God's at work around us in the workplace. God's at work in our school. God's at work with our neighbor. You, that's the, it's so weird when you really start thinking about that. That right now with my neighbor who doesn't go to church, right now God is at work in that person's life. They might not see it or recognize it, but God's at work. Okay, so we have to recognize that first. Then what, 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 the, what he says is the second one is that, is that God, while he's at work around you, God desires relationship with you. That he is in a constant, constant pursuit of us. So, God is, so God's at work around you, at your workplace, and at the very same time, he is in a, he's in a pursuit of you. I mean, it's amazing if you really truly let that sink in. God's at work around you, at work, at home, right here in this building. God's at work around us, and then he's in a pursuit of you while that's happening. And then this is, this is the big one. He invites us. God invites us to be a part of his work. So he's in pursuit of us. He's doing all that work around us. And then he says, and you know what? I want you, I'm inviting you to be a part of it. And then, and then he does this. He speaks to us. He speaks to us he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through the Bible. God speaks to us. Because think about it. If he's at work and he's pursuing us and then he invites us into that, maybe our fear is the thing that's going to keep us from actually stepping into what he's inviting us to do. Maybe it's our insecurity that's going to keep us from doing that. And God is going, no, I'm speaking into that insecurity. I'm actually going to say perfect love drives out fear. As God is speaking that, he's speaking that over you to say you can do this. God speaks into us. God is speaking to us. We might not hear his audible voice, but he's speaking to us. And then that leads us, that leads us to, and I love this part right here, a crisis of belief. <laughs> it leads us to a crisis of belief where we start to say, I don't think that was God's voice. I don't think he invited me. I don't think he's pursuing me. I don't know he's at work. All of that comes into play and we have a crisis of belief that ultimately leads to a need for us to have faith and action. We have to step into it. 
This is going to take faith to step into it. Ultimately, we need to adjust. And that leads us to here. And so this is what, what Blackaby says is experience. This is where we experience God. It's that process that we're get, going through that we experience God. Now look, you guys, if this was, if, if we just went here, this is what, this is religion. That's religion. Oh, I'm religious. I do these things. I'm supposed to do these things. That's religion. But when he's talking about relationship, that is, that's, the, that's the experience that he's talking about. This is the experience that we get to have with God as we, as, we, as we see how God is working. So let's take, for example, just for what I just said about giving and giving from instead of to. If we were just going to give because you felt the need to give... If that's all it was, if I, well, I'm supposed to give, they tell me to give, I'm supposed to give, then that's just a religious thing that we do. And we obey, it's a religious thing we do. There's a lot of guilt to that. There's a lot of, of all right, fine, I'll do that. There's that in it. There's a lot of fear that if I don't, then God's gonna be upset with me. But if you first recognize God's at work, and then God's pursuing me, and then he invites me to be a part of that through my time, through my treasures, through my talent. And so if he invites us into that, then he speaks to us and says, you can do this, even that part that is, is the stuff in your wallet, you can do that too. We have the crisis of belief, of course we do. We say, God wasn't speaking to me. Uh, God wasn't inviting me. I, I don't know if he's pursuing me. I'd rather play golf than, than give to that. Or, or I, I, do I really want, want to do this? Then we adjust. Then we adjust. And we say, you know what? One less, one less cup of coffee at Starbucks a week. We adjust. And in the end, because it's from instead of just to, we get an experience, the experience. And that's what we want for each one of you, the experience. Oh, this is what it feels like as me and God are, as God meets me in this and as I go through that with him. We want to get away from religion and into relationship and into experience. And that leads us right to the passage that we're talking about today. See, what happened in Jesus' time when we read this passage is Jesus is doing all these miracles and Jesus is teaching everybody everything and these religious leaders are standing on the side and they're just watching it going, that is not, that is not what you all need to hear. All they wanted was for us to see that God was present and obey him. They just wanted to press the religion and Jesus was getting frustrated at that. Remember, Jesus doesn't get frustrated at our doubt. Jesus gets frustrated when we misrepresent him. Jesus gets frustrated when, when, when we don't see what the narrative really is about who God is and what God wants for us. Those people are standing there saying, I know what God wants. It's just follow the rules. And Jesus is saying, you fully missed it. And so at one point, while they're continuing to complain about all that Jesus is doing, Jesus finally says, all right, I'm going to do something that's really going to make them complain. <laughs> I'm going to do something that's really going to frustrate them. 
And in fact, he even was going to say, I'm going to do something that even the disciples would, be, would, would struggle with. Because at this point, he'd only called four of the disciples. He'd already, he, John and James and, and, and Peter and Andrew, those guys were the fishermen. They were coming off the water. And so there, he'd already called those guys, and he knew he was going to call other people as well. And he thought, this is a perfect time. Right when all these religious leaders are standing there critiquing me, watch this. And he goes to Matthew at a tax booth and says, hey, Matthew. Come and follow me. <laughs> There's almost a part of you that can picture Jesus going, oh, I can't wait to see how they respond to this one. Hey, Matthew, come on. Come and follow me. What do you guys think of that? You know? <laughs> you guys, I've talked about tax collectors in here before. The tax collectors were kind of the crooks of the area. They're, they, they're crooks. But you guys, in my study of this, I found that it's more than just that they were crooks. They were also extremely disloyal. You got the Roman government would come into a region and they would, they would give the opportunity to be a tax collector to the highest bidder in that region. So in the region of Galilee where Jesus was preaching, where he started his ministry, the Roman government would come in and say, I need someone to be a tax collector. Who, who will bid the highest amount to do that? Someone would bid it and they'd become the tax collector. So they were local. This wasn't just some government person coming in. It was someone they knew. They would set up a booth right outside of where everyone was at, and, and they would tax them on anything. They taxed, if you're a fisherman, they tax you on the fish you caught. They tax you on the boat you're, you're coming in on. They tax you on being on that water. If you're a farmer, it was on your farm. It was on the stuff you, you got in your farm. It was on the stuff you sold from your farm. They taxed it on everything. And so a tax collector would say, okay, if the Roman government set it up as 50 denarii, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say you owe me 75 He'd bump it up another 50%. Why would he do that? Because he'd call that his commission. That's my commission. And so picture it. The fishermen coming in, Peter and those guys coming in, they're barely making enough to, to, to live on, and they see as they're coming in on the, in the port in the Sea of Galilee, they're seeing a, a, a little shack set up, and they're going, oh, here it comes. There's the tax collector. And they're not just saying there's the tax collector, they're saying there's Matthew. He's local, they know him. There's that Matthew, that traitor, that disloyal guy that actually is working now for the very government that's oppressing us and he's not only gonna take the money for them but he's gonna take more for himself and nothing I can do about it. So they're coming into shore going, how much is Matthew going to charge us this time? That's how disgusted they were with this person. It wasn't just that it was taxes and it was a crook that was stealing from him. It was someone they knew that was a crook that was stealing from them. Can you imagine? Put yourself, think about the people you despise right now. We've got people, I know you do, that you despise right now. Think about that person and then think about Jesus saying, that's the one I want. So it's not even just the religious leaders are sitting back there. It's the four of them, the four disciples are sitting there going, what in the world is he doing? And then it says, it, they went to his house. They went to Matthew's house. And he, and he hung out with, with, with other tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors weren't even good enough to be considered sinners. They were on top of sinners. They all hung out together. 
And so that's when, that's when, the, when, the, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders saw this and they asked the other disciples, hey, why does your teacher, why does that guy hang out with those people? You can picture Jesus sitting there. He hears the question and he looks back at him and he says, he says well, I didn't come to, to, the physician didn't come to heal the, 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 the people that are well. They came for those that are sick. Now, if you're Matthew and you heard him say that, you're kind of going, really? Did you just call me and my friend sick? Is that what you just did, Jesus? And you can picture Jesus saying, yeah, yeah, I did. Just like us. If he was standing in front of us right now and he said, hey, I came to heal the sick, not those that are well, how many of us would say, good, I need you? Versus how many of us would say, well, I'm not sick. He came to heal us. All of us. I mean, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's came to heal all of us. But those religious leaders didn't see that. They just saw God that you just had to obey and just do the right thing. And so they missed all of that. And so that's when Jesus says to him this. He says, he says, go and learn what this means. He speaks their language. This is all they ever did. They didn't live out the, the love of Jesus. They just learned the rules. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, now, if you were reading that, you're just reading along, you read, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you're anything like me, you just keep reading. You're going, I don't know what that means. I thought I was supposed to have mercy and I was supposed to live a sacrificial life. I don't know what that means. And so you just keep going. But today I want to I show you briefly a, a little bit of a glimpse of how to study the Bible. Some of you guys absolutely know this, but some of you don't. And so I want to show you guys a little bit on how to study the Bible, okay? So you read something like that and you're ready to just move on. But I want to show you this. This is just a picture, okay? This is a picture of my, um, of my Bible, this is, this is this Bible, that page, okay? We just took that picture. So I've got my notes on it, and I've got some things underlined. You can underline and put notes in your Bible. God's not gonna strike you down because you're learning about him, okay? So that, I, I just, this my, that's my Catholic background. It's that big white Bible that sat on our coffee table that just we knew we'd be struck down if we ripped the page, you know? And so it's okay to write in your Bible, all right? So look it, look it. So, so, so here's the calling of Matt. Oh, oh. So here's the calling of Matthew right here. And then, and then here's where he says, follow me. That's the part that we, that we were talking about, okay? Now, what down here is where we get, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, I wanna show you something in this. Some of you guys, again, know this, but some of you might not. See this little V right here? That's a notation that's in some of your Bibles. Some of them, you don't have those notations. It's really interesting how maybe your very first Bible that you get might be the very hardest Bible that you read. Because the first one hardly has any notes or anything to help you. And then you start to go, I need help. And so you buy a Bible that has help. You know? And so, so some of them will have the notations, some of them won't. Now, just the ones that we're handing out back there, I just looked today and it does have the notation. So, so you'll see this little V and here's what's called cross-referencing, okay? So you take that, this is 9.13. That's the, 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 the 13th verse of chapter 9. You can come up here to, our, for in my, my study Bible, it has all these notes, and here's 9.13 right here, okay? And it says that it's Hosea 6.6. 6. And so what that tells you is that, this, that, that what's being talked about, either that same subject is in a different part of Scripture, or that word is in a different part of Scripture, so you can kind of see how that word is used in different contexts, or the actual Scripture is being quoted, 
okay? And if the actual scripture is being quoted, you can actually see where that, that comes from. So this is coming out of Hosea 6.6, 6, this minor prophet in the Old Testament. So you can go back, look in the table of contents if you don't know where Hosea is. Lots of people don't, okay? So you go to Hosea, and here you go, right here. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burns offerings. So now we're cross-referencing. Now we're seeing what did, what did Jesus mean when he said, go learn this, what did he mean? And now we get to learn what he meant. Because now what happens, you guys, is he opens up a whole new part to the narrative. He opens up Hosea. When he quoted that part of scripture, I want mercy and not sacrifice. I don't want your burnt offerings. When he opened up that part of scripture, the Pharisees sitting in the back listening to what he's talking about, and he turns and tells them that, they sit up at that point. They're going, yeah, whatever, Jesus, whatever. You don't get it. And then he says that, and he quotes Hosea, and they sit up because they know Hosea. They know that this minor prophet in the Old Testament in a part that you don't, not, not very many people read, they know that that book, while hard to read, and there's some, there's some hard parts to it, Ultimately, what that whole book is about, this is what those religious leaders knew. That whole book is about God looking at his people, the, the people, the Israelites, he looked at his people and he's saying, you guys just don't get it. You so devalue me. God looks at him, he's going, you devalue me, you devalue my love, you devalue my mercy, you don't recognize that how much I have poured out my mercy and grace on you, you don't recognize that, you don't see that. You don't see how much I, I want you to pour that out on other people, you miss that. Sin is, is you are super susceptible to sin because you don't see me. And so Hosea is all about, in a lot of ways, God's, God's, you get a glimpse into God's wrath, but then also his love because underneath it, God is just going, but I so love these people. I so love them. I so love them that I'm going to pay the ultimate price for them. Even though there's a part of it, he's going, should I just turn my back and let them go? He's going, I'm not gonna, because I love them too much. They just need to know how much I love them and how much I've poured mercy and grace on them. And see, the Pharisees knew that when he's talking about that and he says, Hosea, they're going, uh-oh, is he talking about me too? No, can't be talking about us. But he is. And now, a few thousand years later, a couple thousand years later, we're in this place where we say, is he talking about us or is he talking about those guys way back then that were blind to it? And the reality is he's talking about us too, that we do this too, that we'll go through our days and how often have we devalued God in our days, that we'll, we won't recognize the love and the mercy that he's poured out on us. We won't recognize the place that we were once in. We won't recognize the brokenness that we've lived in. And because we won't recognize that place of brokenness, it's really easy to forget what God has done and his love for us. And then because we forget that, it's really hard for us to extend that love and grace to anybody else. See, we're in that place. We start to convince ourselves that 
I don't know if I even need God. That's what was happening back then. Throughout our week, we kind of just realized, uh, did I really need him this week? We start to think of ourselves as just better than other people, and so we don't need him. Come on, you guys, this is where Hosea, I say it, now we all got to sit up, because this is really, this is for all of us. I was, I was talking to, uh, to, to Kaylee, who's running our kids stuff, and, and she said, I've been reading about this. And she said, she said in, in, this, in this book that she read, she gave it to me, she said, the author said, we do tend to give ourselves far too much credit. We tend to attribute too much righteousness to ourselves. We tend to think we have more wisdom than we do, and we tend to pride ourselves on having the right character. And we tend to think of ourselves as being more patient than we are. I mean, isn't that true? Man, I'm a super patient person until that person cut me off on 36 as I was heading into Boulder, and now I'm chasing them down. And I'm, I'm chasing them into Boulder. And now what am I gonna do if they pulled over? I'd give them that Notre Dame fist, you know, you crazy, and then I'd keep going. But I'm, I'm, imp- but I'm a patient person. We tend to think we're a little more patient than we are. We, we, we tend to think we're more submissive and obedient than we really are. We're submissive and obedient when everything's going well. When it's not, we're not submissive and obedient. We tend to think we're more committed to the kingdom of God than we are. We tend to see ourselves as more godly than we are. I mean, that's the reality of, I think, for many of us. And it's not something that makes you feel, that's supposed to make us feel bad. It's just supposed to be the reality. This is just, this is what happens. Tim Keller, brilliant, brilliant pastor in New York, he said it this way. He's talking about Jesus and how Jesus talks about how we're blessed to be the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. He says, poor in spirit means seeing that you're deeply in debt before God. And as you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself, God, God's free generosity to you at an infinite cost to him was the only thing that saved you. That's poor in spirit. It's, go, it's recognizing I cannot be anything if it wasn't for the mercy and forgiveness and love of God. I can't do anything if it wasn't for that. That's poor in spirit. But listen to what Keller says. This is brilliant. He says, he says, he talks about being middle class in spirit instead of poor in spirit. I love this. He says, we believe that God owes us some things. He ought to answer our prayers and to bless us for the many good things we've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term by inference, we can say we are middle class in spirit. We feel that we've earned a certain standing with God through our hard work. We've also made believe that the success and the resources we have are primarily due to our own industry and energy. Isn't that true if we're really, truly being honest? I'm a little more middle class in spirit. See, the problem with that tendency is when you name yourself as righteousness and are righteous and when you attribute yourself with more maturity than you actually have, you don't seek the grace that is your only hope. We don't seek the grace that's our only hope in our day. That's our problem. And that was their problem. And that was the problem of those people thousand, a couple of a few, uh, 750 years before Jesus. That's our problem. And Jesus is looking at it and saying, man, you guys, do you recognize what God has done for you so that you can extend it to somebody else? When I go back and look at this, let's, go, let's put, that, let's put my, my, my screen back on. In chapter six, here's what their response was to God's frustration with them. They said, 
are we there? Yeah, he's, he's right here. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He's injured us, but we'll bind up our wounds. After two days, we'll revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he'll appear. He'll come to us like the winter rains. This is them saying, all right, God, we hear you. We'll respond. And I, God's, God's response to this is so true. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. God's looking at him going, I know you're saying the right things, but your love is like the morning mist, the dew that sits on the ground. You guys, I'm a golfer, and any golfer that plays early morning golf knows that when you putt putt it it, with the dew on the ground, you got to putt it really hard because it has to roll through the, the, the water on the ground. But then when the dew dries up and you still putt it that hard, you send it 10 feet by and you're going, what in the world happened? The dew dried up. You guys, he's saying, we can say all we want in this room, but if we don't go back out there, it's going to dry up like the dew. If we don't go back out there and recognize what God has done and is doing, we don't recognize the place that we were at and what he's doing in our life. We'll never be able to live this out. He's saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy. And that word mercy, it's so interesting. That word mercy, remember Old Testament was Hebrew, New Testament was Greek. In the Old Testament, in, in, in Hebrew, I desire to have, that you would have compassion, that you would receive compassion. That's what he's saying. I desire, in the, in the Old Testament, to, to people who say, I desire that you receive the, the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion. Receive that from me. Don't just do the stuff. Receive that from me. But then the Greek word for, for mercy is to give that compassion. And so Jesus is quoting Old Testament and using Greek in the New Testament. So now he's going, I desire that you receive that compassion and you have got to give that same compassion. Andy Stanley said it best, you guys. I, I mean, this, I, listen to this. The more conscious I am of the work God has yet to do in me, the less critical I am of what God has yet to do in you. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. The more conscious I am of the work that God has yet to do in me, I am broken in so much need of the mercy and grace and compassion of God. I'm so in need of that. The more conscious I am of that, the less critical I am of what God has yet to do in you. And it brings us back to the tax collector and those people. And he's going there, and the disciples that are super critical of that guy, Matthew. And he's saying to them, do you know the work I've done in you? If you knew it, you'd be far less critical of this person even though he disgusts you. And you think about it for us in our life and how many people right now you have in your life 
that you just don't like, that you despise, that has hurt you, that's disloyal? You think of the people that are, have, have represent something that you don't, want them to, you don't want to represent? You think about someone that voted a different way than you? You think about somebody that won't wanna get the vaccine versus somebody that does? You think about the person that won't wear their mask or the person that does, and right now there's a lot of division, there's a lot of, of ugliness in our hearts around it. You think about the people that, that, that bug you. You, you. you look on Facebook or Instagram and you just pick out the ones, that one bugs me, that one bugs me, that one bugs me. Why don't you take them off of your, your news? Uh, there's something I like about watching the train wreck of that person. Isn't that true? But the more I'm aware of the deep-seated need for Jesus in my life and my brokenness and my ugliness that he has come to cover with his love, maybe the less critical I'm going to be of the person that's sitting in the tax booth. Play it out like we did our, our model. God's at work around you even with those people that you don't like and you don't agree with their lifestyle, you don't agree with what they're doing, you don't agree with their direction that they're going in their life, you don't agree with something about them. God's at work in them. God's at work with you. And then God's inviting you to be a part of that relationship. And he's speaking to you about it. And he's saying, the first thing I want you to do is remember what I'm doing for you. And then you're gonna have that moment of going, a crisis of going, but I don't like them. I don't agree with them. What if befriending them is condoning them? Did Jesus ever once hesitate because of the fear that someone might say, I'm condoning? Was Jesus condoning the tax collector? Was he condoning? No, he was just loving Matthew. And then we adjust. And then we experience a God that's saying, do you see what I've done in you? Extend that mercy to somebody else. Father, I want to pray that you would help us. Help each one of us in, in, our, in our spaces where we live that, that, that middle class spirit. <laughs> Help us in these spaces where we don't, we don't know what to do and, 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 and we, we despise and we get frustrated and we judge and we're, we get angry. God, help us to recognize the mercy that you've poured out on us. And Lord, help us to be the people that represent you, that represent your love and grace and that we would pour out that same mercy on somebody else. God, we want to live as you are calling us to live. Help us to step towards Matthew as a person, not as a tax collector and all the things we judge, as the person, and that we would re and we'd, we'd step towards that person with the same love you step towards us with. It's in your name we pray, amen.